Before I begin, I would like to make one brief announcement. Uh, please be uh, plan. Please plan to be here next week, Sunday morning, at the worship. We are going to install a new elder. Now, that's a word that's normally used to install. He's, we're not going to install him like a light bulb. It's a, it's a phrase that that means it's an ordination service of which the leadership of the church is going to ordain uh, Art Mink as one of our elders. And so at that time, I believe it's a, going to be a very special time. So please plan to attend. It's something that you may not see very often in churches. This is a unique opportunity for us to to follow the leading of the Lord in, uh, in the growth of our church. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we look at the second half of chapter 7 in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we ask now that you would now calm the hearts of your people and remove the, the worries from their minds and the things that are going to be done this week, the things that are going to be done in a few minutes perhaps, or this afternoon, or whatever. We ask, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be stayed upon the word that Christ be lifted up. And we have an understanding and a growth in knowledge of how the gospel works, how the, the news, the, the facts, and the truth of how the scriptures can be, can be brought into the mind and then the heart embraced by the work of your Spirit. Teach us now how you have done and moved heaven and earth to, to seal your people from the foundations of the world. But now you are moving in your efficacious grace. You are moving in your effectual calling. Speaking to people by your word, by the work of your spirit. Giving them life. Raising them from spiritual death. Taking them out of the dominion of death. Bringing in to them into the kingdom of God, into your kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that these things be made clear, but we also pray, Lord Jesus, that not only would they embrace you, but they would have hearts that would just fall in love with you forever and ever. So, Holy Spirit, we ask, move upon your people. Move upon sinners who need to be saved. We pray these things for the glory of our Father, for the glory of Christ, and for the uh, glory of the Holy Spirit. Give us this grace, we pray in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Now, last week we finished uh, the first half of chapter 7 in the book of Revelation. I would like to just to briefly say that uh, some people anticipate different things when I talk about we're preaching through the book of the Revelation. I mentioned that to my cousin, and we visited them this week, and and when she heard that I was preaching through the book of Revelation, she's like, oh, you know, she got all excited, you know, like, I've read all the, you know, or no, she didn't say that. But, you know, many people will, will say, I read through the uh, Left Behind series and I know this and I've heard, you know, my favorite preachers are Tim LaHaye and, and many people that, that have this view of the apocalypse where, uh, let's just say that it's more Hollywood than it is scripture. Because sometimes when I go and work my way through the book of the Revelation, we have to remind ourselves that God has given us this revelation, these visions, the apocalyptic visions, that we may endure unto the end, that we may be conquerors in this life, not given pieces of a puzzle to put together that we might know when events are going to happen. I'm not going to talk about helicopters with cruise missiles and things like that. 
I'm going to talk about what the Word has for us, how we can endure. And the topic today is going to go from how God has chosen His people, the 144,000 that we saw in this vision, how He has chosen a specific number of people. But then when we look to see them, if we look with our eyes, we took around and say, well, who are they? It's an, it's an innumerable number. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a group of people without number, mm -hmm. like the sand of the sea. Mm -hmm. And then we move into the area of, well, who are these people? And we'll see as we go through the scriptures that an angel will ask John, well, who are these? That, and where did they come from? Mm -hmm. And then we'll say, well, they had been called out of the world. They say a song. They sing a song that says, Salvation is of the Lord. That's what they sing. That's the important part. That is what we're going to learn, that we can endure unto the end if we understand that our salvation is of the Lord and not of our own making. We're going to fail, but God will never fail. So let's go on. The doctrine that we went through last, last week was the a doctrine that was pointed out as being the doctrine of the election. Now, understanding the gospel, just the simple gospel, is one of the most important achievements that any Christian can have. That foundation enables all of God's people to endure. And sometimes people say, well, it's just the simple death and burial and resurrection. Well, those three events have a lot of foundation beneath them. God dies for his people. God gives the gospel out to his people. It does not go out futilely. It does not go out and it does nothing. It accomplishes what it goes out to do. Mm -hmm. There is an effectual calling of God upon people. Mm -hmm. There is the, the, the calling that I'm just giving to everyone now. It's a general call. God calls all men to repentance. But when his gospel goes out in power, people will be changed. Mm -hmm. And so this week we're looking at not only the unconditional election, but also the effectual call of God. To have this understood is something that's going to enable us to have an assurance of our salvation. The effectual God, the call of God is a comforting doctrine. It is not just a point of debate among friends. It's not, I'm not teaching you this so that you win, win arguments and go to and have debates with your buddies. No, no, no. This is going to help you become a stable Christian. It gives you assurance. And so with that, we want to meet the goals that God set out in the beginning when Christ said, all the seven churches, he that endures unto the end, he that overcomes, you that will become a conqueror, this is how you do this, by receiving the word of God and understanding these great doctrines of the gospel. And so in a very brief review, there are seven apocalyptic visions in this book. The very first one we looked at was in the chapters uh, 1 through 3, and how Christ was revealed to John, a tremendous vision of Christ, walking among his churches, giving the promises to those who overcome and who become conquerors. The second vision is going to be chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and then the first verse of chapter 8, which we are involved in right now, involved where God was seen on his throne, where all the universe surrounded the throne. Everything centers around God's throne. We saw how he was worshipped, all those that are around the throne, how he was worshipped. We saw how Christ was authenticated 
that he had authority, that there was a scroll in the hand of the Father on the throne, and Christ was able to take that scroll and prove with authentication that he had authority to bring about all the things that were in that scroll. As the seals were broken, things happened. The first four seals brought about the conquest and the war and the famine and the death. And how we said, that seems to be a typical day in the history of humanity. That seems to be a typical day among God's people that we are going to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. If they persecuted our Christ, they will persecute us. Chapter 6, we went into the vision of how God's people were martyred. How their blood was drained below the altar. And how God revealed his great judgment. And remember, these visions, each one of them, all seven of them, begin at the time of Christ and they end at the great judgment. We have a cycle that repeats, just like all of Hebrew poetry. They say one thing, they say it again in a different way. We get one vision, we see another vision saying the same thing in a different way. And so this time we're looking at this great crowd. Even though we saw the martyrs below the altar, we saw the great throne of judgment, and then again we see the people chosen. We see the people of great multitude. And who are they? Well, they're very same ones that are under the altar. They're God's people. If you would look around and be brave enough to say it, they're us. They're right next to you. They're your children. They're your parents. They're the ones that you pray for at night. They're the ones that you have pain for. So, in true form of the poetic Hebrew form, these things are repeated for their emphasis. Now, our introduction this week is that we will be covering verses 9 through 17. We'll see how the elect of God, God's chosen people, this kingdom of priests, are no more in number and no less in number. God knows every single one. He sends his angels out to set their seal upon them. His name is written on their forehead. I want you to remember that when we get to the place where there is the mark of the beast on their forehead. Because this is no different. You have the mark of God. You have the mark of the devil. It's on their foreheads and it's in their hand. It's what they think, what they love, and what they do. And that's how you know God's people. And that's how we know the devil's people. It is not a mystery. It's just something that we read. The number of these people cannot be increased or decreased. However, the number cannot even be numbered. It is like the sand of the sea, the promise to Abraham and all of his children. And we're not just talking physical Jews because he who has the faith of Abraham have put on Christ. We are God's people in that we are the number. The number is cannot, be, cannot even be conceived of by us. All kinds of people. All kinds of people. Of every language, of every tongue. And they stand in his presence. Remember the previous verse. Who can stand before God and the wrath of the Lamb? And then we see these people standing before God. And they are singing before the throne. And today we're going to be concentrating on what they sang. They sang this, salvation is of the Lord. This is an important concept. It's not that we would say, God gave us an opportunity 
to save ourselves. God gave us an opportunity to take advantage of a good deal. This is not the song. The song is, we would have no doubt been cast into hell forever. There is no doubt of our hopelessness. But God saved us when we were enemies of God. Salvation is of the Lord. This is what they sang before the throne. This is what the vision is showing us. That we through this age, we as people of God in this present evil world are going to endure into the end and be conquerors because we know our God is going to save us. And that all of our salvation is from God alone. So let's go to the verses. Chapter 7, verse 9. And I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every, every nation and all tribes and the peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I'm going to read the next verse because it's the same sentence. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that is the central idea of what is being seen. All these other verses are very important, but they all point back to this event. They point back to the song that is being sung here. The main idea is this. John is witnessing a wonderful vision, and he's seeing the redeemed of God say this. Salvation is from God alone. This is the kind of gospel that must be preached today. Today's gospel is a very quid pro quo. I'll give you this for that. We make deals with God, like Monty Hall. Let's make a deal with God. Look, it's about time that people hear the sovereign grace of God preached clearly. God has saving power, and He can save anyone. He can save your people, your family. And you say, they'll never come to God. They can. God can save any of them. God will save a multitude of people. And so with this, we see this great crowd. We must remember that when we think of this chosen crowd, we may think of the Jews. When we think of these tribes, we may think of the Gentiles. But even though they are Jews and Gentiles, we must remember that this is an apocalyptic vision that must be interpreted. And so we have the chosen people of God with a specific number. Before the foundation of the world, we know that they are also without number from every tribe. They put on Christ, and that's what makes them God's people. So with this great multitude, we should consider the fact that they are singing this song. Now this reminds me of Scripture that's very common in the epistles written by the Apostle Paul. The idea behind this song is this, that no flesh should stand in the presence of God in glory in what they have done. Do you see that? They stand before God in glory in what He has done for us. I'm going to read you some scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you see if this doesn't apply. You be the judge, you think. Now listen. 1 Corinthians 1, 25, we read this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see how he sets this up? Men cannot do this. Only God can do this. For ye see your calling, brethren. Now, this is not just a, hey, would you please come? 
No, the calling of God is the power of God to change a heart. So you see, brethren, your calling, how that not many wise men after the flesh and not many mighty and not many noble are called. And don't be confused. Don't think to your mind, well, many are called, but few are chosen. No, think of it more like this. That's a general call. The choosing is going to be those who actually hear Christ. Now, when I say actually hear, I'm talking about the opening of the heart to understand and these things, oh, and but God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Can you see that? How the world seems to be strong, but only the words of God can change people's hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Why? that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now you see, the end of this chapter, it'll say these words. They are in the presence of God, and they're sheltered by his presence. So we need to approach God with a full knowledge and understanding from our hearts that no flesh should be glorying in his presence, and that should have a clear understanding. Salvation is of God. But of him are ye in Christ, do you hear that? Of him are you in Christ, who of God is made unto us, which means it is God who enabled us to know that it is Christ who is our wisdom, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. There is a lot to brag about. There is a lot to be happy for. There is a lot to say, this is great, but it must be directed to God alone. We must humbly Re, you know, embrace this truth. No man should be able to stand before God in his pride. You cannot. So the purpose of knowing that, that, that this particular passage, it shows us the election, it shows us the moving of God upon the people, but it centers around the idea that they stand before the throne acknowledging and worshiping that there is only God's grace that puts them there. This reminded me of the five solas. You probably know them. Many of you do. The idea that in the Reformation, there were men that said, you know, we need to have some ideas about what is true when it comes to looking at the scriptures. And there are five solas. Let me just briefly tell you what they are. We must believe that the knowledge of God can only be obtained from scripture alone. Scripture alone. The way of salvation is by faith alone, not by the works of the, of the Mosaic law. We must understand that salvation is by grace alone, not by anything that we have merited, by grace alone. Also, accomplished, accomplished by Christ alone. And now we get to this one, that all of this is done not for your glory and not for your purposes, but for the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. It is... It is something that we should be able to see that this crowd, this magnificent, large crowd, which is all of God's people, and they say this to themselves, there on the throne, in the throne, is the Lamb who is the author and the finisher of my faith. He is the one that authored it. 
He is the one that accomplished it. He is the one that finishes it. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And all the angels standing around about the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. I'm reading the next verse because it is the same sentence. Saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now let's not forget what the word amen means. It means so be it. I agree with this. And so what we have now is the great crowd, the, all the elect of God saying, Salvation is of the Lord. And all the, other, all the other creatures, the angels, the four living creatures, all the elders, they fall down and say what they said. What they said. We agree with what they said. And then they proceed to go on with a sevenfold form of worship. A sevenfold form of worship. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Why? All these things point to the idea that salvation is of the Lord. Blessing be to our God forever. Glory be to our God forever. Wisdom be to our God forever. Thanksgiving be to our God forever. Honor be to our God forever. Power be ascribed to our God forever. And His might may it always be ascribed to Him alone forever. Why? Because we stand before God only because salvation is of the Lord. They are looking at what this great multitude is singing. And so verse 13. One of the elders addressed me. And here comes the question. This is what we've been looking at for several weeks, right? Who are these people? The number. The, the, the unnumbered crowd of people. And now they stand singing this song. And now, now the, the elder is asking John, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from whence did they come? What a good question, is it not? And we've been trying to answer it. Who are they? Where did they come from? And this is the lesson, and this is the lesson we can learn. They're the ones who have been redeemed. Let's read what he says. And sir, sir, uh, you know. And he said to me, well, here's the answer. These are the ones coming out of great tribulation. Now, I left out the word the in the English Standard Version. Because in the King James Version, it says, these are the ones that came out of great tribulation. But we can say the great tribulation because our lives are nothing but a great tribulation. They are. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What an amazing thing to say. Our Lord is really good at irony. He's really skilled in giving us such wonderful truths that are paradoxical in nature. Have you ever cut yourself and got it on your shirt and the first thing you think of, oh, let me wash that out. I mean, I mean, would you ever have thought that you would wash anything in blood? I mean, that's the one thing that would say, oh, Watch out, be careful with that. And yet, the image that we're dealing with here, the shadow that's being cast by what is casting it is this, that the blood is what was done by Christ to make your heart pure before God, to cover your sin, that you may wear His righteousness. It makes your robe that you stand before Him white. Such irony that we would see in our own physical lives don't get blood on your white shirt. It'll never come out. And yet it is the blood that we wash in. Sometimes people say, well, that's this slaughterhouse religion. I know this. 
It's an image I can't get out of my head. It's something that once you hear it, it never leaves. It's like a tattoo on the heart that we should be washed in the blood of the Savior. So here we have it. Verse 15, Therefore they are all before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Now that phrase right there, just, I cannot stop thinking about it. How that we can be sheltered by the presence of God. If you look around and see just normal people around us, they're just us. There's nothing special about us, is there? And yet in this life, we are called to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We read that He is our King. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But when we cast our eyes on Him, He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we follow Him wherever He goes. If He says, go here, we go there. If He says, stay here, we stay there. This is our Lord. And how does He shelter us in His presence? There's only one place that we should be, in the holy presence of God. We call ourselves out of the world because God has called us out of the world. We assemble ourselves before the preaching of the gospel because it is there that He says, I will come and walk among you. Do you see the apocalyptic visions? Christ walks among His churches. He knows us from the heart. He loves us. He calls us out. And we are sheltered in His presence. And what presence is that? Health and wealth? No. It is the presence of holiness. The Holy God brings His people in. And there we are, like the burning bush, in the presence of a burning Holy God. And yet we are not consumed because we have the righteousness of Christ. We stand sheltered by His presence. Sheltered by the presence sheltered in the holy presence of God, called out from the world to be holy, to be present in God's place. So there we have it in His temple, the true temple. There will be a time when all of God's people will worship God in spirit and in truth, not just in a physical building. And here we are. Even though we're in a physical building, we must worship God in spirit and in truth sheltered in the presence of God. Verse 16, And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. This reminds me of that scripture in Matthew chapter 5, is it not? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And who shall fill them? Well, the bread of heaven shall fill them. The water of life shall bubble up out of us because God's Spirit has come and has made us alive. They shall hunger and thirst no more. Neither shall any type of leadership or any type of worldly government or beast or dragon shall not scorch us with their leadership. We will survive in this world. We are going to endure in this world. No matter how hot it gets, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what the devil throws at us, no matter what type of political change, no matter how many Putins we got or how many governments we have, whatever the case may be, God is going to keep us. We can endure. We are more than conquerors in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, 
will be their shepherd. We will need no shepherd in heaven, but we need one now. We need the shepherd of this church, the Lord Jesus Christ, to guide us. And that is why we follow the word of God. Now, we have elders here, but we are under shepherds. Only Christ is the head of this church. Only Christ. He will be their shepherd. Guide them to springs of living water. And where is that? The Lord himself. The Lord himself. God will wipe away every tear from the eye. What an image. What, what a concept that God should do that for us. I have a practical application here. It's very similar to last week, but I want to join them together. I, I did give homework assignment. Everybody get that completed? John chapter 6, how many times did you read it? Okay, well, we're going to go over it again. But the idea that of looking at, in this context, how God has elected and sealed his people, but he has also effectively moved in their behalf and has called them out. And, and, and the hearing of the heart and the hearing of the mind, the understanding, is by a hand of God. Now, the effectual call of God is a genuine biblical doctrine. As a matter of fact, it's in our confession of faith. In chapter 10, chapter 1, it explicitly explains the effectual call. So I'm going to read it to you, but it's going to be paraphrased. I kind of changed some words around and made it modern English. But it goes a little bit like this. God is now pleased to call out of their sin and death into holiness and life all whom God was pleased to predestine to eternal life. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? But it is a real full plate of food. God calls his elect by his means of grace, the preaching of the word that he enables by the spirit, by his word and spirit to a state of grace in Jesus Christ. God enlightens their minds in a spiritual way and in a saving way to understand the things of God. God takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. God renews their wills by his almighty power in giving them a new heart that draws them to Jesus Christ so that they may come freely motivated by the new desires of a born-again heart. That's from our confession of faith. And, and folks, we have a good confession of faith. Those are... This confession has been embraced by Christians from generation to generation since the 1600s. Let me just briefly say it again. The elect are called to life. God uses his means of grace to do this. God makes all things new. Their view of life is changed. God regenerates them. They are born again. And now God gives them a new heart and their will is different because their heart is different. That is what effectual calling is all about. Now, I'd like to go through some scriptures that teach this so that you can go back and study them for yourselves. The one that people usually go to, which I'm going to go to, is Romans chapter 8. So let me just read them to you from chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that all things work together. Now we have a better view of this, don't we? God has worked from the very beginning to the very end, not just in your lifetime and not just this week. It's not as though, oh, I, I got a flat tire because he knows I was going to get in an accident. No, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't just go like that. It goes from one end of eternity to the other. God has worked all things because God has abounded toward you in his grace. 
to good to them that love God. Now those who are the elect are, and you say, well, I wish I knew who the elect are. I know who they are. It's the ones that love God. Anyone who loves God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Called out. In fact, the word church means the called out ones. The ones that have been called out to be in an assembly. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And many people are going to say, well, God looked into the future and saw what was going to happen, and then he chose them. You've got to be kidding me. Listen. If God looked into the future, well, then you have him discovering something and learning something. Look, if God discovers something, that means he didn't know about it. You cannot destroy who God is to make your feelings better. You should not be in a position to judge who God is. You did not give him any advice. You are not before the foundations of the world. You are not like the friends of Job. You are not like that. You're not in that position. There is God and there's everything else. And we are part of that everything else. Do not judge God. He did not find something in the future. He put something in the future. He created all things. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And it's not as though we would do something like, well, I have to make this happen. No, God has a way of saying, this is what I want. I want a heart that will love me. And I'm going to take a sinner and change his heart and move all heaven and earth to make this happen in a wonderful way, in a good way, in a way that would be marvelous in our eyes. In a way that the world would say, well, this is the same day as it was like yesterday. It's no difference. And yet, God's people see the difference. Their eyes see his fingerprints on everything. Now, <laughs> my, my kids love to watch this claymation type thing. It's um, Wallace and Gromit. Okay, I'm not recommending anything here. I'm, not, I'm just saying this. That when you watch it on TV, these little clay figures, if you look real close, you can almost see a thumbprint. On, on their foreheads, you know, like someone put it together and then they move them around to take their photographs. And I think to myself, well, that's got to be a lot of work <laughs> to move these little images and make them look like they're moving around. But if you look closely at God's world, you see his thumbprint on everything. You see him on your own life. You see them in politics. You see them from the very beginning to the very end. And if God opens the eyes of your heart, you'll see his thumbprint everywhere. He moves among us. He will make us conform to the image of his Son. Moreover, whom he did predestinated, them he also called. Called. They believe by the word of God. You have the knowledge of the truth, but it is by his command that that is believed. It is done. You give the word and it shall be done. By his word, by his command. John chapter 10, verses 20. I'm not going to get to John chapter 6, I'm sorry. We're going to get there eventually. John chapter 10. But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Now, why did I pick this verse? It's because it has the idea that God calls the elect. He calls the elect. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How simple can you get? Listen to those three statements. My sheep hear my voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me. You don't have to be a theologian to figure that out. You just have to listen. You just have to hear. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Let's do this. John chapter 6. Now in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ has fed 5,000 people that came out to hear him preach. He did so because he didn't have the heart to send them away hungry. But after that, they noticed, my goodness, this man could change everything. He could get the Romans off our back. He could make us the power in this world. He might be the Messiah. And so what do they do? They come after him. And Christ leaves because he knows what's in the hearts of men. Now he left without his disciples. He actually walked across the lake. His disciples took a boat. The others came looking for him. But when they found him, this is what the Lord said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate and the loaves and were filled with loaves. Okay, the idea is this. Since you actually ate bread, that's why you came to me. He says, would you please look at the shadow and learn what's casting the shadow. That is what he's saying. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal, unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For him, God the Father has sealed. Now this is talking about the seal of God upon Jesus Christ to make sure that everyone knows that he's been authenticated to have the authority to do what he's doing. But God also seals his people. But there is that seal of God acting here. And they said, we must, what must we do to do the works of God? Now, they cannot do what Christ did. But the work of God, for them, is very clear. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. And they said, well, show us a sign. They just saw him feed 5,000 people. And now they're saying, show us a sign. So he's not going to show them a new sign. He's going to tell them the sign that he's already given them. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what he said. So what do you think? Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread of heaven. The true bread of heaven came down to give life to the world. And they said, well, give us this bread. Give us this bread. And then he clearly tells them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. The very same message given to the Sermon on the Mount, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The gospel has to do with man's sin problem. Do not forget that. Hungering and thirsting is hungering and thirsting after God's holiness and righteousness. And you shall be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ because standing in his righteousness before the throne of God, you shall be in his presence, sheltered by that. And he said, I say to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. He is defining what kind of faith is not saving. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, is the Lord making it easy for these men? Think about it. He's not a very good evangelist according to today's standards, is he? He's not that guy that's kind to say, 
Oh, you're almost there. Would you repeat after me? He's not doing that, is he? No, he's saying this. If you think that's hard, listen to this. That's what he's saying. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The election, the effectual calling of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him and sent me. Now let me tell you what that is. And this is the will of him that sent me. That I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. Christ will not lose one of his people. Every one of the electors is going to be saved. All of them, without exception. Remember what Isaiah 55 says. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God and Christ will be satisfied with his work. For this is the will of the Father, of everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then Christ warns them, do not grumble, because I said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do not grumble about this. And then they started to grumble. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Isn't this this guy? Why is he talking like this? Why does he say, I came down from heaven? When I know he came from Nazareth. I know it's that. Why is he saying he's coming down from heaven? Why is this all happening? But he says, do not grumble among yourselves. Now listen. No man can come to me. No man can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't it not written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of by God? Now you see the difference? They shall all be taught by God. You know what he's saying? He's saying this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They shall be drawn by God. The same phrase, they shall be taught by God. It is God who opens their heart and mind. It is God who does this. I'm going to have to skip a little bit down the chapter. It all boils down to this. Let me give you the brief cliff notes on this. They say, I don't know about this. But he says this, you think that's hard? You think it's hard? Now, I'm going to say this. You not only have to do that, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And they go, okay, this is just too much now. This is just too much. And at the very end, they just say this. This is too hard for us. And then he looks around and they say this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not a problem. I'm going to read Matthew 16 to you, and you'll understand. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, he's saying, Who do people say I am? And his disciples said, Well, some think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're even uh, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then he says, who do you think that I am? And Peter said this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what do you think Peter felt? Did he say, I had a vision and I God could come down and gave me this? And No, no, no. It is Christ that said this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see how the work of God opened his heart, and Peter didn't even know it. 
He just, oh, I, I just thought I was believing. I just thought I believed. Well, Christ opened his understanding to say, it is my Father that opened your heart. Now listen, folks, God's working all around us. We have to see how he does and bless his name because salvation is of the Lord. You may say, I remember going down front. Thank God for that. I remember believing in the Lord Jesus. Thank God for that. I felt convicted of my sins. Thank God for that. All of God's work is of him. Now that is going to help you endure unto the end. It's a comforting doctrine. It's a blessing for us to achieve that level of maturity to say, it's not of me, it is of God. It is not of me, it is of God. May we see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. In all the, the study that I did this week, I listened to about five or six messages, and uh, some of them was from uh, John MacArthur. As you can see, I'm not making this up. Other people believe this, folks. They do. I heard John MacArthur talk about a Cambridge decoration of evangelical churches. And this was back in 1960, uh, 1996. And I read that declaration. I said, that's one of us. We are like them. That's what I read. But I'm just going to read a very small portion of it. Listen to this. It is concerning the erosion of the gospel of the sola gratia, which means to God alone. Listen. The unwarranted confidence in human ability is the product of the human fallen nature. This false confidence now fills the evangelical world from the self-esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel, from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold and sinners to be customers who want to buy it, to others who treat the Christian faith as just simply being something that works. This silences the doctrine of justification, regardless of the official commitments to our churches. God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but it is the sole efficient cause of salvation. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead and are incapable even of cooperating with a regenerating grace. Now, I'm going to say that again. I'm sorry. I'm going to, it's going to just be a little bit more time. It says this. Listen again. Listen again. The unwarranted confidence in human ability is the product of fallen human nature. People that think they can go to God, you know why? That's part of their human nature. It's part of their fallen human nature. But that's all right. And so why is it all right? Because God can overwork that. God is able to save them. This false confidence in the flesh fills churches from the self-esteem gospel all the way over to the health and wealth gospel, or from those who seem to have transformed the gospel, they've made the gospel into a product to be sold, and sinners are only customers, to other Christians who treat the faith like it just simply works. Like, come to the gospel, it really, really works. And if you get saved today, in addition, you get this. Okay, we'll throw this in for free. The gospel is not a product to be sold. The gospel is a declaration of God's power to save sinners from sin. Mm -hmm. And we are here in this world praising God, saying that salvation is of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Do not put these guns in the back because people don't want to hear it. These are the big guns of the gospel. These are things that must be preached every day, every Lord's day. This is the gospel of God that will save people from their sin. Mm -hmm. Do not hide it.
Do not say, oh, I don't want to scare people away. Oh, I don't want to have any type. No. This is the gospel of God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Understanding the gospel is one of the most important achievements that you can have as a sinner. Because it will be your foundation of your assurance. Understanding that you have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. And understanding that it is God's call upon you to change your heart to believe. is something that you can depend upon. Something you have confidence in. It will help you endure. You will become conquerors in this world. You will become conquerors. And that is the purpose of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The visions were given to us that we might endure unto the end. We have to look at the book that way because that's what we're told to. We're told to look at it that way. Blessed are those who read the words of this book and blessed are those who hear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your grace. You have given us the gospel so freely. We love you and we declare boldly That salvation is from you alone. And thank you, Lord, for saving us from our sins. Thank you for changing hearts. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for changing us from from the love of sin to the love of who you are. Thank you, Lord, and praise your name. Praise your greatness. Praise your honor. All that you are, we bless your holy name. We pray this in our Lord's name.